Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti and on this episode, I'm joined by a champion of women entrepreneurs and family businesses. That's Professor Maura McAdam. She's Professor of Management in DCU, that's Dublin City University Business School. Maura has been amplifying the voices of women in business who are often slow to talk about their achievements and they're sometimes reluctant to claim the credit for all their hard work. I'm very much a feminist researcher and it's this idea of giving voice and um, and obviously then I'm very motivated and committed to actually um, you know honoring the voices of my participants and and these are voices that sometimes haven't been heard. Maura also advises women entrepreneurs to trust their instinct and to use all of the support systems that are there, especially from the Leo offices around the country. First of all, I would say take it with both hands and see what's there and um, and use all of the, you know, there could be training courses, there could be accelerator programs, you know, and all of them have such a wealth of information. When it comes to family businesses, Maura says it's never too early to start planning for succession to who's going to lead the business into the future. We very much say in the, the Centre of Family Business that succession is a process, it's not an event. So you need to start it early, you need to start those conversations. Maura has five amazing pearls of wisdom, which she calls action points, so you'll enjoy them. And of course, she also shares her money wisdom, sustainability practices and her go-to music. Maura McAdam, who's Professor of Management at DCU Business School. Maura, you're very welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. Oh, thank you. It's so lovely to be here this morning. You're doing some amazing research and some wonderful work in DCU Business School. Maybe tell us a little bit about um, how you got into that area in the first place and also what's exciting there at the moment. Yeah, I would love to. So um, my main area is entrepreneurship, but within that it's women's entrepreneurship. And um, I call myself and I have been called the curiosity driven professor. And um, the really reason for that is I'm just curious in terms of, you know, why certain things happen and what it is like for women entrepreneurs. And um, yeah, and I suppose I asked the awkward questions. It was said years ago by an ex-boyfriend, Oh, more are the questions that you ask. So I translate that into my research. And um, and rather than, you know, years ago, they just assumed that um, women entrepreneurs' experience of entrepreneurship was exactly the same as their male counterparts. So, you know, taking going away from that standpoint, I want to know what it's like for women. You know, what are the challenges? Um, how do they navigate? Um, so the cultural norms, the social norms associated with, entrepreneurship so that's what drives me and also then I want to look at interesting areas so it's it's women in tech it's women in digital entrepreneurship in Saudi Arabia um, also daughters taking over their family business so I like really interesting areas um, so that keeps me excited and also then one of my core values is research with impact you know, so I want to be doing research and this very much aligns with my colleagues in DCU Business School that we are engaged with 
or I'm engaged with the entrepreneurs that I'm doing the research for, you know. I think that's really interesting because a lot of the time I think research tends to be done and then sits on a shelf. It doesn't get out into the media. It doesn't have any impact. It doesn't go anywhere. Uh, so when you say you do research with impact, what happens to that research after you do it? Well, I suppose, first of all, even before I do it, um, I actually engage with the uh, um, the women entrepreneurs. So, for example, and um, the father and daughter research, you know, that came from talking to fathers within their family business at an annual conference. You know, so that sort of triggered my research question and thinking, oh, this is what I want to get into. This sounds really interesting. Um, so then we go off, I go off, do the research, and then I think, well, okay, how can we disseminate that? So, yes, it's very easy to go down the academic route, which is very important in terms of, you know, the journals, the reports, the book chapters, but there's other dissemination channels. So, like, there's Twitter, there's podcasts, there's um, the Irish Times, it's all of these things are so very important in terms of getting the message out there. Now, you mentioned father and daughter, and I think near us, we have uh, a chimney sweep that has his name and daughter. And everybody goes like, oh, because it feels different. It sounds different. And I think it's probably a unique selling proposition for them because they stand out. It's something different. But it's a pity that it is so unusual, isn't it? Is it becoming more normal or what's happening in that space of father and daughters? Yeah, I suppose it. It is um, couched within the broader women in family business. And I think the first thing I would say is that women have been involved in family businesses for centuries, you know, but they have been very much in the behind the scenes, the supporting and what we refer to as invisible roles. And um, invisibility is very much characteristic of um, women's traditional role in family business. But what we have seen at the National Centre of Family Business at DCU is that women are taking more visible positions in family businesses. They are taking the leadership positions. Um, but also we have to realise that this, um, and you mentioned it there, it's going against the social and cultural norms. And, um, you know, and one of the most traditional approaches uh, to family business succession planning is primogenitor. And primogenitor is still exists in most Western societies, including Ireland. Now tell us before we go any further, primogenitor sounds like an academic word. What does it actually mean? In very basic terms, it means that the business goes to um, the eldest boy in the family, even if he has an older sister. Um, so that is the cultural and social norm that, you know, if, if uh, somebody has a, a, a business, that they'll hand it over to Patrick as opposed to Patricia. So um, my research then looks at, well, what's it like for Patricia if she takes over the business when she deals with the employee who's been with the business for 30 years, who thinks maybe Patrick should have got the business? Or what's it like when she's dealing with customers and suppliers? So it's, you know, what is that navigation and what is her lived experience of that really like? That's interesting what you're saying about the employees. I hadn't even thought about that before. Has that come up in your research that, you know, the employees who've been there for years, they're used to the boss being the man at the top of the, the, the you know, the, the ladder. What what has your research shown you in that area? Yeah, and I suppose even if um, we think about being a leader, you know, it's very easy. You know, I could wake up this morning and say, yes, hi, I'm more, I'm going to be a leader. But that's only part of it. 
other people have to see me as that leader. So, you know, it's what in, and would call, in academic terms we'd say, oh, I am claiming the leadership um, position, but you have to be granted it as well. And that's where the stakeholders and employees, so um, they may actually think, you know, um, no, this is not the way I thought this was going. And, you know, so the woman then or the daughter needs to really work at establishing credibility and legitimacy. In other words, be seen as the legitimate leader of the business. Now, at the beginning, you said, you know, the, the impact starts when you actually start asking the questions. So do female leaders who are taking over businesses, and maybe they've been working them for a while, when you ask questions and they start thinking about them, what reaction does it because they might have just been just going along doing the business never really stopping to think because they're so busy what sort of thought processes does that spark in women and in families in in business yeah and um, it's no there's no doubt whenever we do research and we start asking questions i think we do start a reflection process with our participants you know it's maybe the first time that they've thought about their journey um, or they've thought about, oh, how far have I actually come? So um, they do start to be more self-aware and reflect on the strategies and the navigation that they've had to engage in. And um, and I suppose strategies um, in simple terms is, you know, the coping strategy. So, you know, um, maybe they've dressed in a certain way. Maybe they've, um, you know, uh, whenever they've gone to a meeting, maybe they've taken their dad with them for a little bit of support as well. So it's thinking about strategies are just the, the way that we navigate um, the different, um, our different social context. That's interesting you say about the way they dress. So are they dressing down? Are they dressing more spectacularly? How does dress come into it? Yeah. Is it about expectations, I suppose? And this is actually, dress has shown up in um, some of my other research projects as well. So for example, women in tech, um, they would have tended when they were starting off their businesses. And, you know, in terms, again, it's all about trying to establish credibility and be seen as a legitimate entrepreneur that they actually would have dressed down you know they would have felt that in order to look like the high-tech entrepreneur they need to actually um you know maybe hide some of their femininity so they would have maybe wore trouser suits and they would have tried to to blend in so dress is definitely a strategy that we can use in terms of um you know trying to gain credibility in terms of blending in and then sometimes women want to use it to stand out to stand out from the crowd and to stand out, say, from the masculine norm. And of course, what some women would say is no matter what way they do, it's going to be wrong. <laughs> you know, like if they do, because a lot of leadership uh, talk about being your authentic self and bringing your authentic self to work. I presume that applies in tech as well. Um, you know, you know, bringing that whole self, that femininity can it work and how can you use that as a strategy or do you, should and again, you? And again, this um, refers to sort of the conflicting social roles that women have. And, you know, and again, this applies to women in tech, applies to women in family business. You know, this will, well, I'm supposed to be the daughter and now I'm the leader, but I'm also the wife. So it's the juggling. And that's um, what a lot of my research, I suppose, is the consistent theme across it is looking at this juggling 
And the same way of women in tech is that, you know, they're supposed to be the um, tech entrepreneur, which is even, you know, it's masculine portrayed. And then also they talked about whenever they went home, their, their sons, one of the sons said to him, you're not in the office now. You don't have to be so hard. So it is all of these roles, the juggling and knowing when to play them. I'm interested in what you have to say about uh, women in technology. How do Irish women navigate that journey and how do we compare with other countries in terms of women in technology and particularly in, in entrepreneurship, starting up their own business? Yeah, and um, I suppose this is something, again, that I'm currently looking at with my um, colleagues um, within DCU. Um, it's part of our genre project. It's a IRC funded project and it's under the GenderNet um, initiative. And we're actually looking at women's lived experience um, within high-tech entrepreneurship in four countries. So we're comparing Ireland, Israel, Norway and Sweden and we're halfway through. Um, we've interviewed over 100 um, entrepreneurs. We've also interviewed VCs and business angels and also incubator managers as well. So we're very um, focused and motivated on really capturing their lived experience. And I suppose, you know, we're in the process of analysis at the moment. So, um, you know, a lot more to be revealed. But yes, very much about um, the masculine norm of entrepreneurship, which also then added to the masculine, um, um, sorry, this masculine standard of technology. So there's a bit of a double bind there in terms of um, the norm um, associated with the tech entrepreneur. And again, we're looking at the strategies that women engage in in order to navigate this norm and again to be seen as legitimate and credible. Um, for themselves and their employees, but also with the investment community as well. I know you're only halfway through the research and you, you probably don't want to give too much away, but are there any early indications or any early things or things that surprise you coming from your research to date? I suppose one of the things that, um, you know, I'm very um, passionate about is obviously looking at gender and the role of gender in influencing an entrepreneurship but also this idea of intersectionality and that we have to move away from treating all women as the same. And we need to look at other markers of difference, whether it's age, ethnicity, class, and how that affects women's lived experience. So one of the things which is emerging, which I'm finding really interesting is age and, um, and how that, you know, women say is slightly older. And I'm saying that as maybe in that category myself, um, can in be influenced or engage in entrepreneurship. Yeah, so women's, um, you know, women's experience of engaging in entrepreneurship in their, say, their 40s or their late 40s is going to be very, is actually different than their experience um, whenever they're 20s and 30s. And I suppose, you know, we can think about that in terms of the confidence that they have, at, um, you know, accumulated, also their networks. But there's definitely differences, which um, for me is very exciting. That's interesting. You're talking about confidence. I was involved with the conference there a couple of weeks ago based out of London, the Wealthy Her. And uh, Tamara Gillen was saying that even with women at every class and part of society, both in Asia and the UK and all over Europe, confidence, it still comes down to confidence all of the time. You know, even very high flying, very, very well educated women, because we know women are getting more educated all over the world for longer times than, than men. Why is it always about confidence? What can we do about that? 
Oh, and for me, and also in entrepreneurship, it's actually what we call self-efficacy. And it's slightly different than confidence, but it, it fits in with it as well. And it's this idea of the, the can-do, you know, do I have what it takes to be an entrepreneur, that can-do attitude. And um, and there's no doubt in terms of the research that women score lower on that than men. But yeah, confidence and self-efficacy and also then the imposter syndrome, all of these negative thinking can actually stop women from actually moving forward into the entrepreneurial arena. Amazing. Now, I know you've done some research as well on uh, allyship. Maybe tell us a little bit about that, uh, you know, you know, that feeling of taking the struggle as your own, standing up, even if you feel scared, a bit about like what you're just saying, but efficacy there and transfer the benefits of your privilege uh, to those who lack it. Do women need allies? Do women need other women? Do they, they need men? Do they need their dads, like you were saying earlier on, um, to help them out? Or how does allyship fit into all of this? Yeah, I suppose it's not necessarily even to help out. I think we all need, um, you know, our tribe around us. And, um, you know, that feeds into this idea of self-efficacy. You know, we're not just born thinking, oh, my goodness, I can do this. But having the right people around us builds self-efficacy and helps us. And it helps us to be able to share our vulnerability and also then to be able to, yeah, to really have someone to share vulnerability with and to build up our confidence. So I think it's very important that we have like-minded people around us. And I also think that it's very important, and I'll probably talk about this in my pearl of wisdom, is that it's very important to um, to mentor other, um, you know, um, I'm very much into mentoring Um, within my own career and it's not just young women it's also men as well so I think that's very important about mentoring Um, and also then I suppose another way I see myself in doing allyship is through my research and um, I'm very much a feminist researcher and it's this idea of giving voice and um, and obviously then I'm very motivated and committed to actually um, you know honoring the voices of my participants. And and these are voices that sometimes haven't been heard before. So I very much see that as part of my research as well. I sometimes think that, you know, people who say very little are doing a lot of listening and a lot of watching. And usually when they do speak, they have such little gems to say. Uh, Have you found that as well, that the, the quieter ones, you know, they come out with some really fantastic analysis sometimes? Yeah, and it's probably because they're actually they're doing self-reflection. And um, and I suppose that, you know, the, the fact that they're being quiet, they're actually reflecting. And um, and from that, they're actually thinking, OK, what is the learning here? And then that's what they're communicating is what they've learned or how they would do things differently. So there's probably something there and they're being quiet and that's that they're doing reflection. Can I just come back to uh, what you're saying about the, the project, the Irish Research Council project that you're doing with Norway, uh, Israel, Ireland and where else did you say Sweden, was it? Yeah. Sweden, yeah. Um, have you noticed any difference, you know, between the Nordic countries um, and Ireland and Israel? Are there different challenges in different regions or is it kind of the same story the world over? You know, there's a surprising amount of similarities um, in terms of, and I suppose it's got to do with the masculinity of technology, entrepreneurship, and how it's seen. Um, but I suppose the differences in what we're trying to really um, draw out is actually the cultural 
backgrounds and the cultural contexts. And um, and I suppose that's what we're really trying to draw out in terms of, and even things like say government support, um, it could be support for, um, you know, um, maternity, those sort of things are where we're trying to really see how they can influence um, someone's engagement with entrepreneurship. But in terms with the actual engagement with technology entrepreneurship, the challenges that they refer to, there are actually, they're very similar. Okay. Um, would you have any particular advice for someone who's, uh, particularly a woman who's thinking of starting her own tech um, business or, you know, branching out maybe from a company that she's already in and doing something similar? I know you've seen the challenges that some women are up against, but are there any particular pieces of advice you could give them from what you've discovered so far? Yeah, I suppose um, I suppose there's an information gathering piece in terms of looking to see what support is out there. And there is a lot of support and I can't take a bit of time to sift through it. So I suppose that's one of the first things is to look to see what support is there I'd also try to get involved in, say, women in net, um, women in business networks, and see can you get involved in any which are technology based. So again, you're building up your tribe, and you're also building up your networks. And networks are incredibly important, not just for the social aspect, but also in terms of finding out, um, you know, the information, finding out about suppliers, finding out about VCs. Um, and I suppose it's getting also yourself known and building your profile within that space, with that space being um, technology, but also even the subsector or the sub the subsector of the technology that you're involved in. So information gathering, building up your network, but also trying to raise your visibility for women tech entrepreneurs. When you say gathering information, are you talking about government supports, the kind of the Leo enterprises, that kind of thing, or wider than that? Yeah, no, I actually, that would be my first stop in terms of let's see what is out there. And there is a lot of support out there for, um, you know, entrepreneur, for entrepreneurs, but also female entrepreneurs as well. So first of all, I would say take it with both hands and see what's there and um, and use all of the, you know, there could be training courses, there could be accelerator programs, you know, and all of them have such a wealth of information that you can leverage, which is there. And also people that have go on that path beforehand. So that would be definitely to grab with both hands the information and the support that's available. And when I uh, you mentioned networks there, anytime I've been to any network events and I go to quite a lot of them, it's amazing how good other women are at helping other women up that ladder, isn't it? And, you oh, know, sharing their, you know, their advice and their own journey with other women. It's been fantastic. Have you found that? Absolutely, because um, those networks are so important also for the social aspect um, and, you know, the isolation, because entrepreneurship is, you know, when you're starting off, you are isolated. You may have left a large organization where you're surrounded by people, although obviously very different now in the COVID environment. But, you know, you're going, you're starting on your own and to be able to go to um, events and to be able to surround it by other people in that similar, sort of similar situation provides so much um, support but also then, you know, um, and particularly I would find this um, in Ireland, that women entrepreneurs will say, oh, have you spoken to such and such? Here's his card. Here's her card. Um, and this is how. And 
you know, phone me, I'll help you. And um, and even I've just even noticed even in my own sort of um, academic context that um, I would get emails of um, this is more I'm introducing you to. So I think women entrepreneurs and women in general in Ireland are very supportive. I think it's probably because they can identify it, how lonely it was for themselves starting out as well. Yeah, that empathy. Yeah, definitely. Um, before we wrap up, and I've really enjoyed our conversation more. Thank you so much. Can I just ask you about one thing that was really uh, caught my eye in some years of cyber feminism? What on earth is cyber <laughs> feminism? <laughs> so this is another project that I'm looking at is digital entrepreneurship. And I um, look at this particularly, um, I've done it within Saudi Arabia and also have another project looking at it in Ireland. And in very simple terms, um, cyber feminism actually looks at um, what is it like for women online so it's very easy I suppose that there is um, an argument to say oh if women go online they're sexless they're bodiless they're nameless it's nameless it's open for all where cyber feminism would actually critique that and say well actually we need to look at both sides so yes it may be an open space in terms of the online environment but yet, but also some of the um, inequalities that women experience offline, they may also experience online. And we've seen that with some of the trolling and the bullying. So basically what it looks at, and rather than just saying that being online is open for all, it takes a more critical perspective of that and, um, you know, to see what is it really like um, for women in the online environment. I think the probably the eyebrows raised even mentioning Saudi Arabia that people think you know they have a certain idea and um, what have you discovered about um, cyber feminism and Saudi Arabia we, we tend to have a very uh, closed opinion I suppose of women in Saudi Arabia yeah so I suppose if we look at um, it from a digital perspective um, they are very much what we refer to as digital natives in terms of their Twitter usage and Instagram and social media so the research looked at how they used these technology and digital technologies to overcome some of the social and cultural barriers. And again, for me, it's a, the navigation and also about the lived experience. So yeah, so looked at, um, it was actually six women entrepreneurs and how they use digital technologies for their business and what that looked like on a day-to-day -day experience. Very interesting. Okay, before we wrap up, tell me, what are your five pearls of wisdom? Okay, so being a doer, I maybe changed my pearls of wisdom into pearls of wisdom stroke action points. Um, so my first one, I suppose, is don't ask or don't wait for permission. And uh, number one, don't wait for permission. You know, don't wait until, you know, I've got the masters that, you know, I've done 10 years somewhere. Don't put these um, milestones on yourself to be an entrepreneur. Don't don't um, wait for permission. Just do it. So that would be my my first one. My second one, and I suppose I've seen this so much with women entrepreneurs, is do not be afraid to say, I am an entrepreneur. I've been to so many events where that I know that women who are very successful um, entrepreneurs are actually saying, oh, you mean my wee business or my project? So, you know, claim it. So I am an entrepreneur. So that's my um, number two. 
So number three would, um, I suppose, apply for women in senior management. And this is the, for me, it's this idea of level up, you know, um, work to the job to the next level up. Now, this actually came from my teenage years and came from the nuns. And um, so they would have said to us, if you want to see in your exam, you know, you need to, if you aim for a C, you might get a D, but you might get a C. But if you want to see, you need to aim for a B. So, you know, and I think that's really good in terms of whatever job you're doing. Think about the job, the next level up and work to that. And don't be afraid to work to that, you know. So very much about leveling up. Um, number four for me is what I call my morning matters. And um, so when I get up um, and wake up in the morning, I could go 100 miles an hour if you allowed me. And my day would just be chaotic. You know, I want to do the emails and I want to get going. But I've had to slow myself down in the mornings and do what I call my morning matters. And um, and that's about my meditation, which really has helped my creativity. But also, you know, realizing, you know, aligning again with your values and also saying to yourself, who do I want to show up as today? So that that's very important for me. Um, and then something that we touched on, this idea, um, it sounds much more nicer when I say American, send the elevator back down, um, send the lift back down, doesn't sound as good. Um, and this is that, this idea of helping um, younger um, people. And for me, it's in academia, it's um, early career researchers. And, um, you know, I've been very fortunate with my job that I absolutely love it. So it's my responsibility now to to help others. And and I must say it's it's male and female um, early career academics with me. And um, and I remember a few years ago, somebody said to me, are you not afraid of them catching up? Are you not afraid of them catching up? And I said, catching up? I hope they overtake me. You know, I hope they take what I give them and use that and really excel. So it's not about that at all. It's about giving back. That's very generous. <laughs> I don't I don't think everybody would be like that, but I admire you. I think it's terrific. And I, I believe in that myself as well. And um, I want to move on to something that women sometimes can be very iffy about, and that's finance and money. And I think it comes back to valuing ourselves and being nervous. It's a bit like what you were saying earlier on about calling themselves an entrepreneur. But money, how, what does, what's the best bit of money advice you ever got? Or how, how do you feel about money and finance and how it affects women's value? Do you know, it's maybe not, it's sort of related to finance, but um, I came, I have three brothers and I was the only girl. And from a very young age, my father used to say to me, daughter, you will be dependent on no man. Now this from maybe five or six and um but he meant this in finance he also whenever i was able to you know um to drive to be able, oh driving to him was one of the most important things about independence and also travel we thought that was the best education and seeing other cultures so that very much has um i suppose um integrated in every part of my life and I suppose with um, finance, having financial independence, being able to, you know, if 
possible take care of yourself and also just be aware having that awareness of where money is going and um yeah so i think financial independence um and as you say i think it does relate to how you value yourself you know um that if you're worth it for want of a better word that you know you pay attention to these things and you know um yeah i think that's why that l'oreal line you know because i'm worth it really <laughs> rings home to a lot of women you know um terrific advice i love your dad <laughs> um, <laughs> Sustainability. Um, you can't open a page in a newspaper now or listen to the radio for more than five minutes without hearing something about sustainability and the fires in Australia and in California and the floods and what we're seeing. And now COVID as well has really brought sustainability front and centre to us in our daily lives. How does sustainability affect business or what your concept of business and you know what's your own sustainability what are your own thoughts about sustainability in your own life so i'm the first uh that to answer the first part i'm going to relate it to um family business and um in terms of sustainability and family business obviously about legacy and passing the business on and um you know if we interviewed 10 founders of a family business i would say nearly all 10 maybe 9.5 would say they want to pass the business on to their um the next generation however there's so much evidence to say that family businesses are not very good at this and the percentages of businesses that don't even succeed to the third and fourth generation are quite worrying sustaining the family business is really good talent management and talent management is about harnessing, you know, obviously the talent and also then rewarding on merit, not rewarding on gender, not rewarding as a result of family membership ownership or birth order. So I think that's talent management will really help that within the family business. Um, in terms of my own sustainability, um, I suppose it's very much, um, you know, again, it's about um, I suppose my morning matters in terms of how I want to show up um, for the world and for today and also what legacy do I want to leave in terms of um, I suppose my research and also about honouring um, the voices of the women that I interview. So. Fantastic. Um, I like what you're saying, but I think it's easier said than done, particularly when it comes to families. You see it in really big family businesses, you know, navigating, as you, you say that word a lot. And it's so true how to hand a business on to the next generation. It must be so difficult. And anytime I've read any pieces by you or about you in the newspapers or on radio, that seems to be something that rings true to a lot of people with businesses, you know, that ability to you know save the business that people have worked, put blood, sweat and tears into for generations, you know, and how to make the coming generations appreciate it as well. It's just, I think people shy away from actually talking about it. They feel that it's a sensitive issue, that it's an awkward issue. And we very much say in the, the Centre of Family Business that succession is a process. It's not an event. So you need to start it early. You need to start those conversations and, um, and such important conversations. But I think, you know, there is a shying away from them. Um, and then they don't get dealt with, you know. So. I think that people think about it as it happens at the reading of the will, <laughs> almost like in a drama. Um, so to finish on a lighter note, music. Is music part of your day? Is it part of your morning routine? What sort of music gets you up and at it in the morning? Oh, my goodness. I love music. I think for me, it's such a mood changer. And, um, oh, I can listen to 
anything and everything. And again, having three brothers growing up, I was um, influenced by many, many different types of music. And um, and I was laughing to myself this morning because I remember before um, I was doing a keynote in the US um, in those days when we could travel. And um, um, before I had my headphones in and somebody came over and said, oh, are you listening to yourself before you go on stage? And I, was, oh, I thought, oh, yes. Oh, no, I was listening to SEDC. Thunderstruck. I was trying to get myself in the mood. Um, so yeah, I really think that um, music is is such a gift. And also, then I love and from a very early age loved strong female um, singers like Kate Bush and Tori Amos, and I love Florence and the Machine. And again, it's all about um, honouring the voices of women. So yeah, oh, I love music. Maura McAdam, it's been a pleasure listening to your own voice and your own wisdom and the very best of luck to you with all your work. You're doing a great job and we really appreciate it. And thank you for being a wonderful guest on the Women in Leadership podcast. Oh, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. That was Maura McAdam, Professor of Management at DCU Business School. Thanks to Maura and thanks to you for listening. If you like what you hear, follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. We're also on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and there's lots more interviews in our back catalogue on the website, www.womeninleadership.ie. We love to hear from you, so email us on info at womeninleadership.ie or through the website. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all of the Women in Leadership podcast team, goodbye and take care. Thank you.